Yes, we are back. Hour number two. This is going to be a unique experience here on radio where we have the host of the show in Florida. We have Peter Wood, who is in a in a non-disclosed location on a cell phone somewhere in northern Minnesota. And the guest for the show, a guy by the name of D.K. Knight, who is a reporter for the timber industry out of Alabama, is uh, calling in on another line. So first of all, let me just turn this this segment over to Pete Wood. First of all, uh, Pete, uh, do you want to introduce your guest? And, yeah, uh, thanks, uh, uh, Brad. This is a little bit different for sure. Uh, <laughs> we're going to try and make it work because of all that's going on. But before I introduce DK, uh, I'd like to apologize for the last show that we had. Uh, we made uh, not a bad mistake, but a little mistake. I don't know if you remember, Brad, we talked about uh, the paper. And we said, use paper. I don't know if you guys remember that. Can you hear me okay? I vaguely, yeah, I vaguely remember used paper, yeah? Yeah, well, we said uh, used paper. Well, we didn't realize it was going to cause a tsunami wave of people going out and buying toilet paper. It's <laughs> so many people that everybody, they just went out and just gotten hog wild on it. And so we got to be very careful what we say about using the paper industry stuff. There are a number of newspapers around the country they had listed a couple of down in the south, one in uh, South Carolina and one in Florida, actually, that are donating four or five papers uh, pages out of their papers to TP paper. They don't print anything on them. They're blank papers, blank pages in the middle of the paper in case you need to, uh, uh, in case you're out of toilet paper and you need paper. They're going real old school there, real old school. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Brad, can I jump in here real quick? And I know you've got well, a guest course. on hold. What's going on with this toilet paper thing, Pete? Is there a shortage of toilet paper? And I suggested yesterday there should never be empty shelves of toilet paper in large grocery stores. Why don't they inundate the market with toilet paper and put an end to this hoarding? Well, uh, DK will have a, some good information on that coming up. Uh, what it, what I believe what really goes on is the, the, the country... Society, the country as a whole, runs on half a tank of gas, okay? And when you run on half a tank of gas, some are empty, some are full, some are getting gas, some are not getting gas. What happened is it was where people got scared, shocked, and they, they cling to what the bare necessities that they believe they need to have. And so instead of having, uh, uh, like, couple rolls, they got to have... 30 rolls and they get yeah. paranoid and scared and they don't know what to do and so they they go into compulsion buying in a way is what i see that's why i say the country runs on half a tank of gas is what it is and you yeah. disrupt it there there's still plenty of toilet paper out there it's just that you you suck the pipeline dry be faster than it can be sustained because everything is in motion that's why grocery stores uh, places that you buy stuff, they, the pipeline is always there, and it's always going yeah. if everybody would stay the same pace. The, 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 what I see could be a, a shining point in this is that I call them the, ones, the square folks. The square folks out there are the ones that only believe you need to use one square toilet paper at a time. And now yeah. is their time, I think, that they could really shine and prove what they really mean, or should I say their time to really prove what they say. So, But they don't need to shake my hand or fist bump or elbow tap. No, no. I'll, I'll just take no. you at your word. That's fine. Just keep your distance, and we're cool. 
But well, Peter, anyway. Peter, let me explain. Uh, let me explain what happened to me. I, I went to my local grocery store here, and I ex- I was going to buy a packet of toilet paper. I figured I'd get a few rolls ahead, and they were gone. And I, I said to uh, the girl at the checkout counter, I said, what, what's with all the hoarding of toilet paper? And she said, people, exactly what you said, Peter, people are panicking. They yeah. think we're going to be shut down for a month, two months at a time. They're not going to be able to get it. So they just hoard everything they can get their hands on. And they don't understand that we've got thousands of shipments in the supply line, but we're not going to restock the shelves until Thursday when our truck comes in. Yeah, they're still on their same schedule. So, But uh, DK, I, I believe DK is there. Are you there, DK? I, yes, I am. Oh, great, great. Brad, folks out there, this is DK Knight out of Alabama. He has been in the timber industry reporting since the 60s, and he is like a, a, like, if you can get on his magazine cover, that is like a very much an honor. And he's been doing this for a long time. Many, many uh, stories. He's met many, many people all over across the USA, and he covered the timber industry greatly. And uh, DK, do you have well, any DK. insight into the toilet paper issue? Yes, I would. Thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure to be on the air with you guys today. And uh, based on what I read, uh, there's plenty of toilet tissue in the pipeline. It's just a matter of what you said, hoarding, uh, panicking, buying, that sort of thing. Uh, Georgia Pacific is a major producer of toilet paper. And I saw a piece the other day that uh, where they interviewed the uh, spokesman for the big mill down in southwest Alabama. And uh, he says that the supply is plentiful. He said what has happened is that the residential demand has doubled uh, yeah. due to this pandemic. While, but uh, he said, but you've got to remember that the commercial demand has decreased. So he said basically it's kind of balancing out because the hotels aren't using near as many rolls, toilet, you know, and restaurants and all that sort of thing. So you have to take all that into account. And it, and it makes sense. Also, a lot of people think that toilet tissue comes from abroad. It, it comes from right here in North America. Most of it's made in the U.S. I heard the other day some people were saying that it comes from China. That's crazy. That is simply, <laughs> simply no basis for that. So I think we'll no. be okay on toilet tissue. DK, uh, can you hear me at all? Yes, I DK, can. DK, can you? Okay. I, I had a question for you. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that about China because I've heard the same people. I've had people talk to me here and they say, oh, well, that's because we're getting our supply from China and they won't send us any. And it's not, it's not the case. We get most no, of it no. domestically, locally. Uh, there's plenty in the supply line. And, and boy, uh, what you said makes absolute sense. Hotels are using less. Businesses are using less. They've just got to re supply the chain a little bit differently. But the question I had for you is, uh, Peter was talking about being on the front cover of your uh, of your publication. Has, has, Peter, has Peter ever been on the front cover of your publication? You're putting him on the spot now. <laughs> <laughs> he, well, let's well this he's, come, he's come close. He's... Uh, Third issue has a story about Peter's uh, business, and it's not on the cover. It's on the inside, but 
Uh, we gave him, I think, about three or four pages in there, didn't we, Peter? Yeah, yeah, you did. Uh, actually, Scott Dane wrote the article. DK proved it. It's a, it's a good article on trying to basically what we wanted to hit on was promoting the timber industry. And people, hopefully folks there in the timber industry will want to start promoting their industry wherever they're from. But their their magazine has been going for many years. It's, what is it, every every other month, bi-monthly, and it's a excellent, excellent. They do a very good job all the time of printing about the timber industry. Yes. Well, the reason I asked that question, uh, DK, was because the, when my wife first met uh, Pete the first time, she said, my God, the guy looks like Fabio. He looks like he ought to be on the front cover of, uh, of uh, cheap, cheap books. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I guess I can be cheap one way or another. <laughs> <laughs> So, so DK, seriously, though, one of the things that I have noticed, uh, I winter down here in Florida, and as I come through, we always drive through Alabama when we come down here, and I notice that the production of wood is so much different than it is up in northern Minnesota and Wisconsin. You you have a lot more of the uh, the, the long pine or fir trees. So you have a different kind of market down here, I would think, than what we have up north. Yes, that's true. It's mostly what we call tree-length logging down here, and not and not cut the length uh, or shorter shorter length. And uh, it's basically pine, some hardwood, but uh, uh, a lot of this stuff goes into in the in the south. A lot of this pulpwood winds up becoming what we call container board. Are the okay. brown bark material, and that's what's primarily produced down here. And I think uh, that is not the case uh, in Minnesota or the Lake States area. It's a different product, mm-hmm. and uh, right. But it all has to use the same, not the same species, but it's still considered pulpwood. All of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We do a lot of uh, now you have glassy paper style wood up here, and also rayon cellulose that kind where it's uh higher end like um higher high quality paper product okay now i would i would assume you have a lot of differences even though there are some similarities uh, from the areas i would think there's a lot of differences even in the harvesting of it because in alabama they can harvest pretty much year-round where uh, up in northern Minnesota, you've got bogs that need to freeze over. You've got uh, a lot of different things, a lot of different uh, requirements that come into play. That's correct. Uh, it's pretty much 12 months a year deal down here, although it can get too wet to work. Uh, but uh, it's, it's basically a year-round deal. You're right. Okay. And, uh, it's, you know, I, it's... Uh, probably a little higher more productive per man day down here than it is in other parts of the country uh yeah but uh it is anyway a lot of similarities but yet some, a lot of differences as well 
DK, do, do you have, uh, are there differences even in the way the states authorize the taking of wood off of state property? For example, w- one of the things I noticed was a year ago, after the big hurricane went through the uh, panhandle area of Florida, it also ended up going across the southern portion of Alabama. And when we drove up there, uh, that, uh, you know, that uh, shortly thereafter, going back up to Minnesota, we noticed that uh, there were a lot of trees down, lots of trees down all over the place. When we came back the next uh, spring, they were all gone. They had all been logged off. So is the state pretty good about going in and clearing up blowdowns and things like that? Well, not so much the state. Uh, The states don't own much forest land down here. It's pretty much uh, corporately owned or independently owned. And uh, quite frankly, unfortunately, when a hurricane hits like that, uh, sad to see, a lot of that material is never recovered because it's very difficult to go in there, even with today's equipment, and, and deal with that stuff because it's all broken up and twisted and some of it's uprooted, yeah. some broken off, and so it's. Uh, I wish our industry could, you know, recover more of that sort of thing, but it's just it's just virtually impossible. And a lot of it just simply goes to waste, and uh, yeah, that's sad because a lot of landowners, you know, rely on that for their retirement or to educate their kids, this sort of thing. So it's uh, just one of those things that. Uh, well, I was I was impressed when we uh, when we came down that next spring to see so much of that uh, so much of that timber that had just been twisted and blown down and stuff was now stacked up in in uh, sized logs along the side of the roads and obviously somebody had gone in and cleaned them up. Yeah, you can, you can do some of that, all depending on how bad the damage is, uh, but. Uh, what happens there, though, is that there's such a surge of timber coming on the market that it over overruns the, overruns the market, and the prices sure. are just uh, go down. You know, and uh, it's it's just, so you have a lot of factors feeding into that. Hey, Peter, uh, Peter, I have a question for you now. DK publishes a, a is it a monthly timber industry publication down there? Yeah, actually, we have five, six magazines, some of which are geared to harvesting and others are geared to sawmill production, plywood, OSB, okay. that sort of thing. Uh, Timber Harvesting is one of those groups, uh, one of those uh, magazines that goes back to 1953. And it used to be monthly, but we took it to every other month about 15 years ago. And uh, okay. But it's, it's our national publication, our our flagship in the harvesting sector. Yes. Sure. Well, the reason I asked was, Peter, do do we have anything like that in Minnesota? Are there any publications of the timber industry? There's a couple of them, a couple of organizations. One is the, like, uh, what I'm a part of is the ACLT. That comes out about three times a year, maybe more, a publication, but it goes to just the members. And then there's also timber producers, which produces on that uh, goes to just the members, and they'll send some to like offices and that. Then you got over in Wisconsin, Henry Schenebeck and the Great Lakes Timber Produ- Timber Producers Association. I think theirs comes out like once 
once or twice a year, maybe a little bit more, maybe three times a year, and that goes okay. to its members. But like what DK's, his magazines, all his magazines, that goes to many, many, and he covers the United States. Like sure. Minnesota is just for mostly just Minnesota or its members, maybe one or two, like a few over in Wisconsin or something like that. And they'll overlap a little bit. But basically, yeah. it just stays in state mostly. Whereas DK's magazines, they're going across all the states, and his publication is very, very well known in the timber industry. Yeah. And um, he he reaches out to a lot, a lot, a lot of people. Okay. Well, guys, uh, DK and uh, Peter, you both know we are a commercial radio station, so we have to take a, a quick break here. I just want to remind all of our listeners that, uh, you know, these are strange times we live in, but uh, people still want to see new windows, new siding, new roofs, uh, new doors on their homes. And boy, if you're looking for some great uh, Marvin windows, now is the time to get a hold of Les Grumdall Window and Siding, the area's exclusive dealer for Infinity from Marvin uh, and they've been serving the Northland for 70 years Infinity by Marvin windows are meticulously crafted by exact standards to outperform all other brands and they've earned the number one satisfaction in J.D. Power's 2019 window and door satisfaction study. Infinity by Marvin windows homeowners uh, get, get a premier line of Ultrex fiberglass replacement windows which are energy efficient with many colors and styles to choose from. So call Les Grumdahl Window and Siding today at 218-728-3060 or go online to lesgrumdahl.com for an estimate. Don't put off replacing those drafty windows uh, till next year because you can save the money by getting them done right now. Kenny, we got to take a break and then we'll come back with uh, uh, Pete Wood and his uh, guest DK DK from Alabama and talk a little bit about the differences in the logging industry. Your headquarters for Hannity. Sean Hannity every afternoon beginning at 2 on the Talk of the North, 710 and FM 98.1 WDSM. Giant Redwood, larch, the fur, the mighty Scots pine, the smell of fresh cut timber, the crash of mighty trees. With my best girl by my side, We'd sing, sing, sing. I'm a lumberjack and I'm okay. I sleep all night and I work all day. He's a lumberjack and he's okay. He sleeps all night and he works all day. I cut down trees, I eat my lunch, I go to the lavatory. On Wednesday I go shopping and have buttered scones for... Ah, yes. I don't know, uh, DK Knight, if you've heard that uh, little ditty before, but we like to play that every uh, every month when we have Peter on the show. <laughs> Love it, love it. It's a little bit different, isn't it, DK? It is. <laughs> kind of just chuckle and laugh a little bit all the time. Even when I hear it, even years later, still laugh a little bit. But, uh, uh, if possible, Brad, it would be great to talk about how DK got into reporting about the timber industry because most, pe- most folks out there don't even think of it that way. They just think of loggers out in the woods and be by themselves and cutting wood and that kind of stuff. And But actually, how did DK actually get into talking or meeting with loggers and that, if that would be possible? 
Well, and, and, and especially because you've been doing it, according to what I read anyway, DK Knight, you've been doing it since the 60s. So this is not uh, a Johnny-come-lately to this. How did you get started in this business of writing and reporting on the uh, logging industry in Alabama or the timber industry? Well, uh, I, I, after high school, I, I went to college for a while, but uh, I, I was real wise and dropped out of college and got married at age 19, so I had to support a family. And uh, But I went into newspaper work. I had a brother who was uh, in, in that field and I started out uh, at the very bottom and uh, uh, worked for three or four newspapers in North Alabama. And uh, the latest being the Huntsville Times, and uh, relocated to Montgomery in 1968, uh, and went to work with this small company that had—I was the fifth employee, I believe—and there was one magazine there. And uh, so we we uh, didn't know much about the industry, but we were a good learner, I think, quick learner. And uh, uh, I grew up in a rural setting on a small farm, so uh, I. All, I've always enjoyed people, and it was a, just a thrill to get out and start traveling and meeting these guys out there working real hard to uh, Harsh Timber and our magazine. Uh, at the time, we only had one. It was going to the eastern United States. Uh, then we we added uh, magazines gradually uh, over time and started going into the sawmills as well and uh, went nationwide with our publications and so it's it's been a good a good ride. I stayed there for 51 years and about three months, and uh, okay. was fortunate to become part owner of the, of the company, and sold my stock about a year ago. And I'm still on uh, staff, more or less in a consultant capacity. And okay. so uh, that's that's pretty much it. Uh, now, DK, just as a a lot of things. Just as a, a way of knowing you a little better, did did you ever work in the industry itself? Had you ever been out logging, or did you just report on it? Was just something that interested your uh, kind of uh, piqued your interest a little bit? That's correct. I never, I never cut. Well, I never had cut down a tree for a living, but uh, I know how to use the chainsaw and do a little bit of that sort of thing and uh, whatever. But I sure. never did any of that work, but. Uh, uh, I was fascinated by it, and uh, at that, in those days, it was much more labor intensive. Back in the early uh, late '60s, uh, I saw it progress uh, in a real splendid fashion. It was much, uh, you know, very dangerous work back in those days. It is still dangerous. Oh yeah, very much. But it is not as near as dangerous as it was back 50 years ago. Uh, because we've come full circle with our mechanization. There's still a lot of chainsaw work done out there, but it's uh, it's nothing like it once was. Right, Peter? No. No, remember, I don't know if you remember back probably in the 50s, 60s, there was these machines made on tires, and they had a saw that looked like a slasher saw. It was a circular saw, and they put like a 20-horsepower motor belt-driven to cut wood out in the woods. Remember those things? And yes, they go around and cut wood to eight foot or whatever. Those things are wicked dangerous, and they were very popular, I think, in the southeast United States. But uh, those are extremely dangerous machines. Absolutely. And, of course, you know, uh, it's uh, as industries go, logging is still one of the most dangerous uh, out there. 
according to the Bureau of Labor, Labor Statistics. But uh, sure. it, I think it and fishing are right up there and always seem to, seem to trade places on one to two. But we've come a long way. I've been uh, – we're much safer now than we once were. Where Our equipment is better. It's much more productive. Uh, uh, and speaking of equipment, I think your, re- your listeners would be very interested to know just how much of a – how important the Lake States area has been in developing logging equipment. Uh, the first, some of the first knuckle boom loaders, all of the first knuckle boom loaders came out of uh, Wisconsin and, and Minnesota. Uh, yeah. Bob, Bob Larson uh, came out with a machine uh, in Ely called the High Bob, H-I-A-B-O-B. Uh, yep. He later sold that to a larger company and, and so forth, but uh, Leo Heikinen out of Prentice, Wisconsin, also built one. Uh, other Minnesota and Wisconsin loader brands that came along in the 60s and 70s were Ramey, Barco, Hi-Ho, Husky, Limco, Hood, and Serco. Sure. Some of those companies. A lot of names. A lot of names we recognize up here, DK. <clears throat> Listen, we got to take our Fox News break, uh, but uh, but let's think about this a little bit. When we come back from this, I'd like you and Peter to talk a little bit about the differences in logging operations from Minnesota to Alabama. I'm I'm sure that in Alabama, you probably have a lot bigger family-owned companies, uh, maybe than even you do up here in Minnesota. But let's talk about that and the equipment differences when we come back after our Fox News break. So, Kenny, take it away. Ah, yes. Peter, a little woodchopper's ball to bring us back. Makes you always want to get up and dance, doesn't it, out there? <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> so, it's, so, it's a nice upbeat to it. It makes you feel really good. It does. In a downtime, it just seems like, wow, it's so nice. Say, you know, I'm glad you brought that up about the downtime. In your industry, you really don't have to worry about social distancing, do you? I mean, you're not right on top of people out in the woods when you're cutting trees or even when you're stacking them. No, no, usually our distance is three to 400 feet. Yeah. (laughs) Keep back 300, 400, 500 feet because we don't want to, because trees fall quite a ways. No, we're, we're pretty much quite a bit apart machines get closer a little bit but nah, it's that's why a lot of loggers are loggers they they like to be alone they want to be out in the woods yes. they want to do what they do and and I, a lot of loggers are the same all over the nation they may do a little bit different here and there but as a whole i believe loggers are a lot the same you're always you're always trying to figure out how to move your product a little bit more efficient so you can put a little bit more money in your family's pocket based yes. in a nutshell and, and what can hurt you when outside circumstances that you can't control can hurt you greatly kind of like regulations coming down or it's like the the big thing that I see is all these emissions that are being put on motors that the exhaust systems 
And who ends up paying for that is the, the companies do not pay for that. The companies build it, and it will be fit into the selling of that product. It's the end sure. buyer of it that will be paying for it, and it slowly erodes at what you can do. Now, these machines are not old with the new exhaust systems. I think they came out like 2015, 2016, where it was mandatory to have DEF on them, diesel exhaust fluid, okay? And those things are still fairly new, but as those get older, my big concern about it is, can you repair them yourself, or is it going to be extremely expensive to fix them? Sure. Okay. And that becomes a big issue. And it's always in the back of your mind, how can we efficiently move our product more? Uh, DK, from your end of it, does it seem the same way down there where guys are always trying to figure out ways to be more efficient? You know? That's correct. Uh, there was a study in the Northeast a few years ago that, uh, that concluded that the most successful loggers are those who are constantly... Uh, reevaluating the way they do it and uh, challenging the process, trying to come up with ways to tweak this and tweak that, shave a few cents off of this step, or, you know, just, as Peter said, trying to become much more efficient. That's always a constant challenge uh, because prices uh, seem to be pretty static and, and you know, they don't, they, don't, they don't seem to meet the operating costs uh, for a lot of people and, uh, so it's sure. a constant battle, and uh, it's very frustrating. To the equipment, Peter, to, to the emissions control, another thing that down the line is going to be a problem is that we, we have these tier four engines that are, are required, but, and, you know, EPA mandated that, and they went into effect, as you said, about 13 and 14, 15. Somewhere in there, yeah. So they, yeah, they, so they burn, they are cleaner, and they uh, put out less pollution, which is good. But the downside to that is uh, when these machines become older uh, and, and they're traded, uh, where's the market for those machines? Because it will not be offshore because much of the world does not require those machines that have those engines. They, their diesel fuel is, is not as clean as, as our supplies. So the market that we used to have in South America and uh, Asia and other and Africa and other parts of the world, uh, you know, they don't want these machines because they they're too high tech for them. So that's going yeah. to be a real issue down the line. That has already been. I've talked to a salesman about that probably a year ago or so, and they used to take you know used machines like you're talking about DK, and they would uh, revamp them and they would change them over to where they could sell them abroad, <clears throat> but now and they could sell them fairly cheap. And other parts of the world do not require tier four motors, which is the latest motors. They sure. they don't care. And um, now the problem with this equipment is that to to change them, you can take. See, the motors are still in, internally. That's still pistons and fuel combustion and power. That still hasn't changed. Where the change has been is the exhaust. What goes into the atmosphere. And when, when you want to change that back, it might get so expensive that now instead of taking this machine, revamp it a little bit and put maybe twenty, thirty thousand 30000 into it, and then they can sell it abroad for, let's say, 200000 or 100000 Well, now they've got to take the same machine, and they're going to put $100,000 into it to change it to get it to where they can sell it abroad. 
and now the the broad customer says we're not interested you're out of our price yeah, range it's too expensive for us yeah Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Peter, Peter, maybe you and DJ or DK would talk a little bit about uh, the differences in the size of your operations. I don't know if you've ever talked about that. Are, are there are there bigger operations down in Alabama than there are up in Minnesota or are they are there a lot of family operations just like there? Uh, DK, I'll hit on it quick about Minnesota, and you can talk about Alabama. But up here, they range anywhere from one to two people, uh, individuals on the job site and trucking, to some are 50, 60, 70 uh, employees. So there's a wide range. And when you get like like over about eight or nine, pretty soon they start to have two crews and three crews and four crews, and they'll get get bigger that way. Um, Ours is in... Wisconsin cut to length. In Minnesota, there's some cut to length, and there's still some conventional where you have the feller buncher, then the skidder, and then the slasher, and that processing. So it's a split here. Um, lot, most of it is crib trailer hauled here, eight foot, some saw logs, but not as much. The tree length used to be real heavy back in the oh, back in 2006 and older when we had the mill up in um, Cook. And also, they're still probably linked up in International Falls, up by the Canadian border. But, DK, how about down in Alabama? What kind of, or size crews do we have down there, would you say? Well, you have a wide range, just like you do there. Uh, and when I speak, I'm talking about the south as a whole, not just Alabama, but uh, you've got the reason you have more tree link operations down here, are full tree operations, is because the mills are set up to take that wood. And uh, okay, and and the, and that's not the case in, in all parts of the world. The paper industry came from the northeast, then it went basically to the Lake States area and came came south. And so, many of your newer mills are down here. Uh, but even a newer mill down here goes back to the eighties. I think the last new paper mill was built in about nineteen ninety. And so. Uh, you know, but but that's getting old in the paper industry, actually. That, that's correct. And uh, so, while and that, you know, let me say this: that the paper industry in the U.S. is uh, decline. It's declining here, but it's increasing globally. Uh, and uh, a lot of that has to do with electronic media, you know, and and people want their news online or whatever. And and sure. uh, but. Uh, that's so it's gone through a big transition, but it's still a very viable industry, a very important industry. Uh, but as far as family, a lot of family operations down here, probably a few more larger uh, operations down here. But there's only so big you can make a single operation. You usually break it up into different crews because they're more efficient. But the fact that you can operate year round down in the south versus uh, more seasonal elsewhere. Uh, you know, goes to higher production and, and this sort of thing. If you don't have to cut a tree right. up after you fell, you can get more product out in the day's time. So, uh, but it really, the, it's, it's many, many similarities. A lot of family operations down here, just like everywhere. Could we hit on one thing, uh, DK? What is the most unique logger you ever really met? I, we've talked to this off air and that, uh, and uh, you did an article on Harry Fisher back in the later 70s, 
And then I remember the logger from Michigan was probably the biggest logger in the United States, Earl St. John. He's since passed away. But what would you say would be one of the most unique operations? Because I found Earl St. John kind of unique because he he got in at the right time and he got really, I mean, he got huge, huge. Didn't, Didn't he have like 18 track bunchers going at one time or something like that? Yeah, I think some of those machines ran stroke limbers and uh, were also used in, as excavators as well. But he had 12 to 15 at one time, he did, and about three chippers and so forth. Over 100 employees at one time, including some subcontractors. Uh, you know, and then he moved away from tree link and chipping to cut the link before he died. And that's what that's the way they're doing it now. Okay. Uh, other big, other huge operations out west. You know, you still see some of those guys out there that have a hundred employees or so. And uh, it seems that the trend is to be that larger operations that that operate to scale are gradually what it's coming to. Uh, and many times they're integrated. Uh, you know, do their own mechanical work. Uh, buying the timber and all this sort of thing uh, on the stump. So it's, um, uh, well, I, I would like to point out as far as, I've, I've seen some real characters in my time, and I know you guys like to have a pretty good laugh from time to time, but. <laughs> no longer, okay, I, buckle I, up, folks. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'd put the, put the Caps brothers uh, from Western North Carolina among the most memorable that i that I ran across, and this was back in the 80s. Neither one of these guys ever finished high school, but they had a, a Mount Everest work ethic and uh, standout mechanical skills, and, and this drove them to uh, great financial success. But, I mean, they just loved to work. And a local who knew them once said that the Caps boys would probably try to work a half a day on Jubilee Day. But uh, <laughs> that was supposed to be a joke. <clears throat> <laughs> but their dynamic work ethic regarded, regarded uh, they, they were very successful. I heard a story once in the 70s, they all walked into a Cadillac dealership near Asheville, dressed the way, just the way they came out of the woods. They'd been working on equipment, it was dirty, so their clothes were soaked with oil and dirt. And they walked in and informed a reluctant salesman that they were there to buy three Cadillacs. And the skeptical salesman, didn't really want them to sit in a car or whatever, but he said, well, how do you gentlemen expect to pay for these cars? And uh, one of the, the folks of the group was named Frank Caps, and Frank looked him squarely in the eye and said, why, we figured we'd pay cash for them. <laughs> Looked like they couldn't run and at that, together. And at that, the salesman fainted. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, they, you know, those, those guys were a real, a real hoot. I'll, I'll tell you that. Uh, oh, I've I can imagine. Who made a great impression on me? One was a guy down in Florida. Uh, his brother-in-law. This guy was a paraplegic, and he so wanted to, to keep working in the woods after his automobile accident. And his brother-in-law fixed up a skitter so that he could operate it with his hands. And he would actually wow. have to lift him up in the, lift him up in the seat every day. Uh, and he stayed on that machine virtually all day long. 
And, I remember uh, that and article. He would, and yep. he would work. Yep. He would. Oh, yeah. And, you know, uh, but anyway, uh, there's some real, real characters out there. Uh, back to the equipment side, one of the most unforgettable, one of the guys that really stood out to me was Norval Morey of uh, Upper uh, Lower Michigan. He he, he brought a pulpwood, uh, portable pulpwood debarker to market back in the 50s. And then in the early 70s, developed the industry's first whole tree chipper. And Norval never got beyond the sixth grade. But he liked to yeah. boast that he, he, was a, he finished the sixth grade as the seventh smartest kid in his class. But then he wow. quickly, but there are only seven kids in the class. <laughs> well, the, but the thing you find, I think, guys, is in that field is a lot of those people had mechanical abilities and they could keep their equipment running. And when they could do that, they could also then develop equipment that would help them out in the woods. Listen, guys, we, we've got to stay on a little bit of a time frame here. I'm, I'm sorry to let you say that we're, we're going to have to cut your boat loose. Uh, Peter, it worked out okay. Uh, uh, I hope next month we're back to some semblance of order here in this country and we can get you back in the studio. But yeah. I want to thank you and uh, and DK both for uh, spending time with us this morning. It's always a great segment. Well, thank, thank you, Brad. Both. Thanks, Kenny, DK, folks out there listening. I appreciate that you're willing to let us come into your lives for a little bit of time to give you a snapshot of what the timber industry is like a little bit. Thank you all very much. Absolutely. Thank you. Take us with you on your mobile. And listen all day and work with the free WDSM radio app.